Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is John Foraker, co-founder and CEO of Once Upon a Farm. Once Upon a Farm delivers fresh snacks with immune-boosting probiotics to keep your little one's wellness top of mind. Before, John was the CEO of Annie's Inc. We discuss his learnings running Annie's for over a decade, how he became the CEO of Once Upon a Farm, what led to Jennifer Gardner becoming a co-founder, what it was like developing a new category, and why they chose to expand to retail really, really fast across the country. Without further ado, here's John. John, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. Oh, thanks so much again for taking the time. This is going to be a lot of fun. So let's start from the very beginning. I mean, you worked a long time in natural foods and and, and the natural product space. What was your initial attraction to those uh, sectors? Yeah, well, my first food company I was working on was in what you would call like the specialty food space. This is back in the early 90s when specialty food was all about like gourmet stuff and it tasted great, but it wasn't very healthy or generally not as healthy. And there was this industry that was developing called the natural products industry, which was very separate from that. And it was like corner store granola shops and all about health, but a lot of it tasted like cardboard. And there was this, those two worlds were kind of colliding toward each other. I could see it in chains like Whole Foods were being formed and Whole Foods was starting to buy up all these regional specialty grocers. And so I learned a lot about organic at that time. And it just, it felt very much like this was going to be a really big thing because of the way consumers were changing and the way uh, flavor and health were all coming together in something exciting. So that's what got me the most interested. And then I also say like the ethos of the national organic food space is a really cool ethos. It's about making the world a better place having a positive social environmental impact. And those things have always really resonated with me. So I felt really at home in this space. That's awesome. And I mean, you were there from at the very beginning, right? When, um, as you said, Whole Foods was still kind of starting out and buying up and started to buy up different grocery stores regionally and then um, expanding. And of course, now they're just a behemoth. And it's just uh, incredible how that whole natural foods has obviously grown in the past, you know, 20, 30 years. How'd you end up working for General Mills and become the CEO for Annie's? And what were some of your learnings from, from that experience? So I became the CEO of Annie's in 2004. Before that, I was an investor in a company that bought a control position in it in 1998, 1999. It was a very small little company based in the Northeast and moved it to California in 2004 and ran it from then through an IPO in 2012 and then sold it to General Mills in 2014. And then I stayed at General Mills for three years, which was really, really interesting and fun. I Everything I ever learned about consumer packaged goods, I learned from being an entrepreneur and just figuring it out and surrounding myself with people that were smarter and more experienced than me. And at General Mills, it was the first time I had a chance to work for a really big company like that. So to get to see that perspective on not just the space, but how they get things done and everything was really, really a cool development opportunity for me. That's awesome. That's awesome. And then 
Of course, you left Annie's and you started Once Upon a Farm and became obviously a uh, an entrepreneur. What attracted you to entrepreneurship and maybe what was like the, the initial like founding story behind why you wanted to start Once Upon a Farm and, and maybe the insight that you saw? Sure. In my prior companies, I had been involved very, very early from pure startup to getting involved when the business was a little mature, but always very small companies. And I kind of craved that challenge again. I had just spent three years at General Mills, which I think was around a $16 billion company with like 40,000 employees. I wanted to go back and kind of challenge myself and say, could I do it again? as a little bit of it. That's honestly one of the personal things about it. But the spark for me was when I took Annie's Public in 2012, I got to be very friendly with the founders of Fresh Pet. And because we we went public around the same times and we were in the same hotel rooms and talking to investors all at the same time. And it amazed me that you could buy fresh pet food in, I think at that time around 14 or 15,000 grocery stores in the US, but you couldn't buy fresh baby food. But there were all these moms and dads that were making fresh baby food at home, which was a lot of work and whatever. It just was shocking to me that that didn't exist. So in 2014, I started looking at that space really closely with the idea of trying to find a very small brand to get involved with early. And I found Once Upon a Farm. It had been founded by Ari and Cassandra in San Diego in 2000, late 2015. They had just started. And in 2016, I became their, their biggest outside investor. And then um, I didn't really expect to do anything other than just be an investor in it. But in 2017, Ari called me up and said, hey, Jennifer Garner's manager wants to talk to you about why you're an investor in Once Upon a Farm. And would you be willing to do that? Because she was very interested in the business because of her background with Save the Children and addition, focusing on kids and rural poverty. And she wanted to affiliate and get involved very deeply with something that was really small and early in the kid space. And so we met, I had a hour long meeting that I was a half hour late for in Los Angeles because of all kinds of crazy stuff to get there. But then we ended up going about three hours just talking about just the challenges that kids face for in education and in food and access and food insecurity and all that. And we kind of just at the end of that meeting, I high five and said, Hey, we got to do something together. And then we're like, maybe we'll do this. Let's talk to Ari and Cassandra. And they invited us in as co-founders. It was still a tiny, tiny business, less than a million in revenue. And we basically decided to make it big and go after it. How did it become initially on Jennifer Gardner's radar since it was such a, you know, tiny business? Ari and Cassandra had um, done a nice job putting it online and the products were in some Whole Foods stores. At that time, she found them. They were in Southern California. So there was a little bit of visibility for the brand, but it was still really small. And the products and the positioning just really resonated with her. Like Jen is like the most authentic person and the hardest working entrepreneur I've ever worked with and super passionate about making a difference. She uh, has been working with Save the Children in the U.S. for over a decade and has been out in schools and seeing the challenges that kids face, um, particularly in rural poverty, and was keenly aware that there's a need for better, healthier kids' foods. And so she thought that this would be an interesting one to look at. Her manager did some scouring and found it. She got approached by many, many different companies to get involved, but this was really the one that touched her heart. And then when we connected on it, it was even more of a reason to get involved and and that did it. And it's been a crazy rocket ship ever since with her just 
on airplanes. Like she's very deeply involved in this business. She's not just an endorser. Like she's on, she's in all my LT meetings. She's working on the business every day. She really helps us focus on our purpose and mission and values and the way we talk about that in the context of the brand. She's just really been an amazing partner. What was also that process when you transitioned to CEO? Did you had any reservations over it or or kind of what was your process in terms of deciding if you actually wanted to become a CEO of the business? Yeah, so the first thing was really just making sure I really understood the opportunity, the product quality, all that stuff. So I, I checked all those boxes. The main thing for me, honestly, was wanting to make sure that RA and Cassandra really wanted the help and wanted us involved and could we define the roles that all four of us had, you know, Jen Kasari on uh, Cassandra, Ari and myself in a way that would make us all happy and that we could be successful. And we figured that out pretty quickly. And the first thing we did together was we sat down and we wrote the core values and the mission statement of the business because we wanted that in, ingrained day one. It's just been a great process ever since. Once I saw that, I was like, I was kind of ready to take the risk and just go for it. And it was, um, it was kind of, yeah, it was kind of scary. I hadn't been in that position for 15 or 20 years. Once you became CEO and there was already a bit of traction with Once Upon a Fauna, as you said, you, you were in a few stores, you, you also had an online business, but what was strategy wise, maybe focusing on distribution or, or even product, what were maybe some of the first initiatives you felt like you had to do and, and, and were able to execute on? Yeah. So the first, anytime you're trying to create a new category, there's a lot of stuff that has to be figured out. Like, for example, if you want to go into the bar category and you want to sell a bar, right? There's lots of things that are givens, like where in the store it's going to go, who your competitive set is. We had to figure that out. We had to figure out where we want to be. We had choices. We could we needed to be refrigerated because of the product. So you could be in a lot of different places on the perimeter, or you could put refrigerators in baby aisles. And we tried that too. I'd say that was the biggest one was go to market, figuring out what the best strategy was there. We landed on taking the products into dairy sections in yogurt and right next to, you know, other kid yogurts. And that was a really good decision, but it took us a while to get there. And then we had to also figure out um, how to talk about this product. Fresh baby food is a new thing to see in a store or even online at that time. And we had to figure that messaging all out. And yeah, I'd say those were the first big things. And then the last one was like, how big to go? You know, we made a key decision here, which is the opposite of what I've done my whole career and opposite of what I tell most entrepreneurs to do is we went wall to wall. We just said, we're going to go big. We think we have an opportunity to create a category. We need to make a lot of noise around it. We need to have a big presence at retail. So we went from about 300 stores to about eight to 9,000 stores in about six months, which is really unheard of. <laughs> and about 90% of that distribution worked, about 10% of it didn't. But the retailers liked the idea, even if it started a little slow, we figured it out and it turned. it's now turned into a really big business. And a really successful part of the category, which retailers are loving. But it took us a while to build that. Since you're building a new category, was it difficult to get retailers maybe on board with having you in their stores? And what was that whole process like, like like the actual sales pitch to, to retailers? It normally is really hard. We had a great combination of things though, like I had a lot of experience with these retailers and a lot of really high up connections and credibility from what I had done at Annie's. Jen had obviously her celebrity, but more importantly, her ability to like 
you know, articulate this mission and vision for what we're trying to do here. And we had some good selling information. So basically, we just got on an airplane and flew all over the country for three months. And having Jen involved in just everything I just talked about, it was unbelievable how um, it wasn't easy, but it was much easier than you would think to get the distribution. It's been much harder to make sure that that distribution worked really well and that we've grown the business since then. And we have. But one time we walked into a retailer and this has never happened in my career. And it was supposed to be a meeting with like three people on their side. And I walk in, there's like 15 people on their side because everyone wanted to meet Jen. And then they opened up this like sheet of paper and rolled it out. And they said, here's our schematic, which is the shelf set, basically. Here's the schematic for our region. And by the way, you guys should fill in these spots right here. And that happened in the first five minutes of the meeting. <laughs> like that never happens. <laughs> like, it just, I just, people who sold into retail stores will know that that never happens when they hear this. Were there particular regions that you wanted to focus on first or, or, or did you want to go to national? I mean, obviously you did it in six months, but did you kind of go national within uh, six months? Yeah. So we wanted to go national and we wanted to do it with the retailers that we thought best fit, the consumer profile best fit what we were trying to do and that were retailers that liked innovation and that leaned into it. And so Whole Foods, Target, Kroger, the big retailers, and then lots of smaller regional independents too, that we had done well with uh, places like Bristol Farms in Southern California, for example, and you know, new seasons up in the Northwest and retailers like that were also on our radar because they're so important in, in how they lead and sprouts. So we went to, we picked the retailers that we thought would be the best, that would be the most interested. And then we prioritized them and um, really just brought our A game in terms of what we would do in terms of supporting the brand and business once we launched. But we also were like, you know, when you launch something new like this, like there's a lot of learning that we would have probably gotten if we had taken two or three years to do it. That probably would have helped us be more successful faster once we got the distribution. But we just took the approach of being aggressive and like, we'll figure it out. And we did. It took us a bit, but we did. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny because I've had on uh, Clayton Christopher who told me something about when he looks at companies, like what companies should should focus on is really owning a particular region and really obviously think about the velocities within the region versus trying to go national so quick and then your velocities are there. The It's much more intriguing to maybe investor or just the company in particular is much more intriguing if they're doing particularly well in one region with high velocities versus nationally and not. But I think what's fascinating about this story and your story story is you just you went super big super quick and and obviously it's worked out beautifully so that's great yeah yeah so the first year we're out there with the broad footprint of distribution it was slower than we wanted the turns were a little bit lower than we wanted retailers were patient they loved the idea because it was true innovation in the category like um, you know they get presented a lot of stuff that's just knockoff it's not really innovative this is really innovative so they knew it was going to take us a little time the key insight that we picked up, we did a lot of really important learning and talking to consumers and we improved packaging. We made product more consistent, lots of things like that. But the key insight was in 2018, all the products said baby food on them. It was a clean white package. It was a, a aesthetically pleasing package, but it wasn't optimized really for retail footprint we had. So we improved the graphics and design. We talked to some consumers and we found out that over 80% of our consumption was actually kids between the ages of one and seven, not babies. Although we had a lot of people come in through baby, they stuck with us. So we were like, hey, you know what? We're actually more of a kid brand 
if you talk to the consumers who are using us. So we started changing some of the packaging and messaging to really talk more to that. And then including doing um, a real modernization of the packaging look and feel early this year. And the business over that whole time frame, the business just took off. Like our velocities are 500% higher than they were at the end of 2018. And they doubled last year alone and they're continuing to really roll. So you do really need to obsess about velocity. Clayton's exactly right. We took a big risk by doing what we did, but in hindsight, I'm glad we did because we got way out ahead of a lot of competitors and things like that. But we did make, it was harder than it needed to be. Like we would have slower build would have been a lower risk and um, we probably would have gotten there, but it would have taken us a lot longer. Yeah. And it, it makes sense in terms of why maybe the velocities right off the bat were maybe not exactly where you wanted them to be, or were just a little bit sluggish because as you say, you're developing a new category. What do you thought about the early stages of Once Upon a Farm, how did you also think about consumer education? Since you are building a whole new category and it's not a tricky category, but you have the parents who are the customers, but then you actually have the the children who are the actual consumers. Well, I had a fair amount of experience working in kids' products at Annie's, right? Where you do, you you really do have to think about these two audiences. You've got the kid and do they like it and will it taste great to them and will they repeat and then the mom or dad who's like kind of the gatekeeper and making sure that the nutritionals look good and the ingredients look good so you have it is challenging you have to manage these messages now for baby it's not that challenging because you just have to really message to the mom or dad you know but it's got to taste the kids got to like it right so we thought long and hard about that and you know the business started out online it was um, Ari had uh, put it up online with a little store and that was one of the first places that we started connecting with the consumers and getting insights. So we put a lot of education materials and efforts into our online effort, obviously because Jen has a huge social following, like unbelievably big numbers um, that grew all through this time too. Uh, she's been able to help us get the word out, A, but also educate around healthier alternatives and the benefits of fresh and all that stuff that we talk a lot about. No. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. What was your, also like your approach to, to fundraising? Obviously, you know, you entered the business as an investor transitioned to CEO, but when you were thinking about fundraising for this company and maybe choosing the right partner, what were maybe the conversations you had internally around, around that, that kind of side to the business? Yeah, so I I was fortunate that I had had some success in the space, mainly because I made so many mistakes. I learned from them over a long period of time, but I had some credibility. And so it was not difficult to get the attention of, you know, really high class, uh, top quality investors. So we, we, we pretty much could have had anybody we wanted involved. I narrowed it down to a very small list of people who I knew and I knew their reputations and I knew that they had incredible capabilities. At that point, we were lucky in that like we could raise any amount of money we wanted from almost anybody, but all the money was the same color and it spent the same, right? It was like, what comes with it? I went through that very short list and narrowed it down to a couple and decided to to really have them lead with us. And it was tough. It was tough, man, because there's some unbelievable investors that I didn't um, have lead with us. And I, I love them still, and I hope I do something with them in the future. But it was one of those things where you know, you kind of need to be big enough with one or two investors to have it be meaningful enough for them to make the math work. So that's the process we went through. And both of those investors have continued to support us all along and have been wildly valuable to us um, all along the way. So it's been great. It's been fantastic. 
How also did you think about pricing as well, since you were, you know, the first to market in, I mean, or, you know, developing a brand new category? I would think that pricing might be a little bit tricky. And was it helpful having a wholesale model from the get-go, the very beginning? I talked to like John Sebastiani, and he was saying how when you have uh, DNVBs and they want to go omni-channel and expand to, to to retail, and they're not retail to begin with, it can be a bit tricky because the pricing actually is not really reflective of what it should be when it comes to wholesale. So then you have you don't really have the same pricing online and, and retail, or you have to really think about pricing. Pricing is very tricky to redo later on down the road. So I would love to just kind of hear how you thought about price from the beginning. Our product is really special and it's unique and it's you know, fresh and instantly quick frozen fruits and vegetables that we process at 40 degrees. They never get hot. We cold press them and then give them a little shelf life through doing that with high pressure pasteurization, high pressure pascalization. And so it is an incredible product. So we knew that it deserved to be a premium product and the brand was premium. So we looked at, to your point, like there was no category for us. We were kind of creating our own thing. So we a bit triangulated to start between you know, what, what's going on in the yogurt section, what's going on in this area of the store we're in, what's going on in the traditional baby food category. And we triangulated on a price point. And then we thought about that and said, okay, what does that look like? Um, in CPG, there's this thing called a pricing slope, which is basically like, what does pricing look like from your highest price point retailer all the way through the different channels, grocery online, natural, mass, club, et cetera. And what does that average price look like? So we were pretty thoughtful about that. Unfortunately, didn't make any big mistakes. But the most important thing about pricing really is like getting out there and experimenting and learning. Like all this early stage CPG stuff, and we screwed lots of stuff up and learned, right? And then quickly pivoted. It's like collect data, look at it. What is it telling you? And don't hesitate making a move. So we had to learn what's the right price point, what should we do for promoted price? How frequently? we? It took us a couple of years to really optimize that. Now we've got it in a great spot where it's truly scalable. Like we can really blow it out. And we know we're competitive, but premium enough to put margins in the business that allow us to achieve what we want on the profitability side, but and also to invest in high quality, which is always going to be, and food safety, which are always going to be the number one for us, but to do it in a way that um, will work in the category. So- that's what we did. That makes a lot of sense. We talked a lot about how you've expanded in retail, but I would also love to know how did you also approach online and and scaling your scaling your online business? Yeah, so as I mentioned, Ari started the business online. So we always had an online presence. When I got there, the first year, year and a half for sure, we focused way more on retail just because we had to. But we built the presence and continued to invest in it in both people and in the platform, we were in a pretty good position when COVID hit, thankfully. We didn't have to invent it. It was there. It obviously took off because of the change in shopping behaviors. But we've been investing pretty heavily in really improving that uh, shopper experience, making sure we've got the right platform in place that's scalable to grow. Um, the biggest challenge we had in 21, actually, was our business was growing so fast, our capacity was really constrained. And so we had to for a while on our online site had to allocate capacity that would sometimes go toward like smaller, more unique items. You could only buy from us online. We had to allocate capacity to our best selling items that were available both online and retail. 
So our assortment wasn't as big as it needed to be in 21. You'll see that change because we've now tripled our capacity in the business and we can really keep up with the growth. But I think it's essential. Like you can't have, um, there's a guy named Vishal from Obvious Ventures who you should meet someday if you haven't interviewed him before. But he, early on in this company, I was talking to a bunch of smart people who I respected and, and I was talking to him about brands and he used this concept of, he called it a modern brand. He's like, you can't be, you need to be a modern brand to be successful. It connects with the next generation consumers, which means you need to meet them wherever they are, um, online, offline, and in between. And so we've been focused on doing that, not just direct to consumer, which is very important, not just in retail stores, but the other place that's, that doesn't get talked about enough that's really been changing dramatically in the last three to five years has been the digital capabilities of retailers themselves and companies' capabilities to connect in with those. Right now in our business, about 50% of all of our volume happens with a click, which is pretty amazing because 50% of our business is not DTC. We have a huge e-commerce business that gets done through retailers, meaning consumers will go to the retailer's website like Target or Prime and they'll click to buy and they'll pick up curbside or they'll have it delivered. That's a massive part of the grocery business now and will be forever. And so it's a huge growth opportunity for companies to really figure out how to tap into that. And fortunately, we had good skills there and capabilities. And so as COVID kicked in and we rolled, we were in a great spot and we've really gotten good at that. What's maybe your at the time was maybe a, like a big mistake or one of your biggest mistakes that you thought, but then later on, you actually felt like actually that was maybe like a blessing in disguise. The scariest thing that we had happen in this business, we had a line of products that we, and a few products that we introduced in 2018 that were, they were for basically for toddlers. They were kind of in a pouch. They were a little bit thicker, had a little bit more texture in them. And the consumers, our consumers have been telling us they wanted more of that stuff. And our consumers also have been telling us that they really were interested in some products that had nut protein in them. So that they could kind of like start getting their kids to consume nuts with the idea. And there's a lot of research out there around this, that the earlier you consume nuts, the more likely you are to not have nut allergies. And so we developed two items that had some nut proteins in them. We labeled them as you have to for allergens and saying like, hey, these have nuts in them, blah, blah, blah. And so we had perfectly legal, good products that consumers loved. What happened, though, is we put those products out in retail, a couple of them. And um, we had some consumers that were buying them, giving them to kids that they knew had nut allergies because they didn't read the label. And so we had a couple really, really scary like EpiPen epi incidences very quickly. So we pulled those products off the market immediately. And fortunately, we we dodged a bullet there. But it was that's the scariest thing we had happen in this company. And we take food safety extremely seriously as a as a kid baby company, obviously. And even though we were in compliance with the law and we were messaging and doing all that stuff. Like it just shows you sometimes stuff can happen. And the lesson for us was like, hell no, we're never having any allergens that we, um, you know, any of the big eight allergens in any of our products ever again. And also it's a great example of sometimes you just got to go fast. Like the worst thing we could have done would have been to take a while to figure that out. Like all I needed was a couple phone calls from consumers that had had a really scary incident. And that was it. Like we made the decision like, <laughs> immediately and we were out of them. So that was probably the, the one that pops right to mind. But it's also interesting too, we talk a lot about the show about fast feedback loops and certainly with the DDC channel that you have those uh, fast feedback loops. And 
this was actually one of the feedback loop that you thought was, you know, great to introduce nuts to from customers. They thought it was a customer demand and yet it backfired. That's also just really interesting too, just when you actually are taking in feedback from, from customers for new product ideas. Yeah. The thing that we missed, and there's no doubt that's exactly right. Like you can, you know, having close connection and empathy with consumers, which you get through a direct to consumer business, which we have, and we spend a lot of time on that it can give you really valuable insights on where you want to develop and the like, but you kind of, the, the lesson I think in that is you have to then carry that to the next level. It's like, okay, yeah, there's those consumers and they were there. They wanted it. They were pissed off actually when we killed those products, <laughs> you know, but what we didn't really think through is like, what about the people that aren't aware of that, aren't paying attention or that, that think of the category in a convention that would never have nuts in it, which I think is probably it, right? Like, you don't see any nut proteins in baby foods or anything that looks like a pouch, right? And so we had some consumers that just were like, well, pouches don't have any of that in there without even reading the label, right? And so, yeah, it's a good example of what can what can happen in the fact that you just have to be listening, you have to be nimble, and you have to be super fast to, to pivot. I mean, that's like the whole story of early stage, right? It's like learn, iterate, learn, iterate, pivot, pivot, learn, iterate. That's what we had to do. Also, a broader question for you, since you've been in, obviously, natural foods for um, a long time, how do you think about products that are better for the environment versus actually better for you? And maybe like the distinction between those two. I feel like when it comes to when people say plant-based, it's maybe implied that it's better for you because it's plant-based, but sometimes it's not always the case. So I just love to kind of hear your perspective just since you've been in the industry for a long time. Yeah, my perspective is that, you know, interest in in plant-based products is real and it's driven by a lot of different things. Some of them, you know, animal welfare, some of them environment, some of them people's bodies own reaction to, you know, animal proteins or dairy. I would say that the space is evolving, especially when you when you look at plant-based meat replacements is a great example. Like you have a few big brands that have gotten that got out there early and have made products that very closely resemble the like taste experience of meat. And they're, they're in, you know, a significant part of their positioning is around the environmental impact of that and the lessening of the footprint and, you know, all that. The trade off though is really long, complicated ingredient statements, questionable, you know, health credentials, I would argue. And I don't think that that's sustainable long term. I think consumers are going to demand over time that they get both of those things, not just one or the other. And I think you're going to see, I mean, those brands, the big ones are clearly, they know that and they're focused on continuing to like have different version and releases of their products are continually improving them. But I also think that there's going to be new competitors that are going to come in are going to level it up and, and give consumers both. Um, and then I also think on the animal based side, there's a big trend and just growing awareness around the role that animals can play in regenerative agriculture too, and especially in better farming and sustainable food systems. And so you have people eating better, you know, pasture raised meat and those farmers are using those cattle to be part of a broader system that's, you know, treating their land better, regenerating the soil and sequestering carbon in there too. So that's, there's a whole positive environmental angle on that part of the meat industry too. So lots of moving pieces, but I'd say people always are going to want healthier stuff 
that's going to happen and it needs to taste great and needs to be accessible and they're not going to compromise on all those things over time. I've also heard you've, you're quite fascinated with NFTs. <laughs> Would love to kind of hear if they're ever going to be, or if you either think that there's a role for what's about a farm with NFTs or how you're thinking in terms of maybe to, uh, to bring your community uh, closer together. Yeah. You know, I'm learning a lot about them and like, to me, it's, it's very fascinating. I've been paying attention to blockchain obviously for a while because of the potential for that in just the food supply chain, there's been a lot of conversation about how, you know, the positive um, impact that technology could have as it rolls across food. That's where I really started. But NFTs is super interesting to me because it's very emerging. It's very like niche and cutting edge. And sometimes those things just like blow up and fizzle, right? But sometimes they're the beginning of something that's transformationally and so much bigger. And the idea that People can have ownership in digital assets that allow them to feel a special connection to something, whether it's an actual piece of artwork or something. Um, if you take that idea out and you think of like, well, what, what could a brands do that would allow that consumer to feel that special connection to a brand or, or to a social mission or cause? Like, I just think that there is so much potential in that broad idea. Where I'm at on it now is just trying to learn as much as I can and think about and think like that. Like, what are the, applications of that 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 are outside of what people think of nfts now that could be something really a breakthrough for brands in the future i'm doing a lot of thinking on that i don't have the answer yet <laughs> what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally yeah so the inspired me personally was omnivore's dilemma by michael Pollan, which i read many years ago and it was just such an eye opener on the way to think about industrial agriculture and the choices we make about food and the relationship of food to society and environmental and social impact. So that was a real game changer for me, just in terms of opening my mind at a time when really interested and in that space, deeply rooted in it, in the organic space, which, you know, received a fair amount of criticism in that book. And uh, for me, like from a kind of a workbook, like the one that I've been talking the most about over the last couple of years is a, a book called Ramping Your Brand written by James Richardson. And he's a friend of mine. He's done some consulting for our company too, to help us figure some stuff out. But the reason I love that book is the best book I've ever seen for like early stage consumer packaged goods, brands that are trying to figure out like how to build a brand, how to start how to quickly iterate, how to like, just think of the whole thing. I wish it's a book I wish I had many years ago and I would have like avoided a lot of mistakes. <laughs> so, so I recommend that book constantly. And trust me, if anybody's early stage food company out there, or even a later stage food company, there's a lot of the principles that can be applied there too, that are just as, that'll keep you quick and fast um, and smart. So anyway, I love that book. I really appreciate it too, because no one's brought up these books, either of them on the show. So really excited to add that to our book list. And yeah, Ramping Your Brand, I'm going to have to read that. That's uh, That sounds amazing. Yeah, it's a good quick read. It's super interesting. James is brilliant. He comes at... He comes at everything from a like a social science, like kind of almost an anthropology kind of background in terms of the way people interact with brands. It's really cool. And he's done a great job helping a lot of young brands make good decisions about how to how to how to grow. That's awesome. My final question for you is what's one piece of advice you have for founders? It would be don't let perfect get in the way of good and just pivot, learn, iterate, pivot, learn, iterate, pivot. And 
never lose your core values and your focus on your mission, but be flexible about what it takes to get there so that you can be successful. I love that. John, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. It's really nice talking to you, Mike. Thanks a lot for the time. Have a great day. And there you have it. It was awesome having John on the show. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.